Today's podcast is sponsored by True Bill. Five dollars here, ten bucks there. Those monthly subscriptions often feel like a great deal until you forget about them. So get your subscriptions under control with True Bill. Go right now, truebill.com/gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. On my last podcast, we went over the final CPI numbers for 2021. Seven percent is where we ended up. The highest reading since 1982. And of course, if we still measured consumer prices using the same CPI that we had in 1982, it would have been about 15%, the worst year ever for inflation. Well, today I want to start off talking about the producer prices because on Thursday, we got the December numbers. And in fact, this number was actually up a little less than estimates on the headline. They were looking for an increase of 0.4, which would have followed 0.8 for the prior month. Now, the prior month, November, was actually revised upward to 1%, but we only got a 0.2% increase for December. And so that meant that the year-over-year increase was 9.7% which was higher than the 9.6% year-over-year number for November, but slightly below the 9.8% that had been estimated. But the main reason for the smaller-than-expected rise was a big drop in gasoline prices that really held down the number. In fact, if you X out gas prices and just look at the core, there we came out at up 05 which met expectations and with an upward revision to November from 0.7 to 0.9, the year-over-year core PPI rose by 8.3% versus 7.7 in the November month and ahead of the 8% that had been estimated. So overall, I think this number was a bit hotter than expected despite the fact that the headline number missed But if you look at what's happened to oil prices so far this year, we've got an 11% increase in oil prices in the last two weeks. That is a big move. That is going to really push up gasoline prices in January. And so I think we're going to see a big print for January that's going to totally erase the fact that we got a lower than expected number in January. December. And I think a lot of the traders recognize that. And so that's why they're dismissing that number, realizing that, you know, the real number is hotter due to this surge in oil prices, which looks like it's going to continue. In fact, oil prices closed above $83 a barrel on the week. In fact, oil was up 6.2% this week alone. And if you look at that chart, it is very, very powerful. I think we're going to take out the high, which is 85, I think, and change. I think we're going to take that out next week, and we're going to be north of $100 a barrel, I think, this quarter. And if not, then maybe by the first half of the year. But I think more likely in Q1, we'll be looking at $100 oil, and we may be closer to $150 a barrel by the end of the year than 100 And next year, I expect an all-time record high in the price of oil above $150 a barrel. So all of this is a tailwind for inflation, which means it's a big headwind 
for the economy. But again, also look at the delta between producer prices and consumer prices, where we have 9.7% increase in producer prices, but only a 7% increase in consumer prices. Consumers have been spared the full wrath of inflation because producers have been eating some of those price increases and not passing them on. But as I was saying all last year, I expect that to change this year because businesses need to recoup their costs. They need to protect their margins. And I think we're going to see businesses trying to catch up on the ground that they lost last year, which means consumers are in for an even bigger bout of inflation this year than last year. In fact, already, I think it was yesterday on Friday, Netflix announced an 11% increase effective immediately in their prices. I also read that Sherwin-Williams was increasing the prices of their products by 12%. Again, these are big price announcements early in 2022, which is exactly what I was saying to expect last year. But it's not just that inflation is speeding up, but the economy is already slowing down. Look at the numbers that we got on Friday. First, we got the consumer sentiment numbers. Last month, we were at 70.6. The consensus was for a slight drop to 70.4. Instead, we plunged down to 68.8. And the reason for the pessimism is surging inflation expectations. Consumers now expect inflation at 3.1%. That's the highest in 11 years. But the reality is it's going to be a lot higher than 3.1%. Imagine how much lower consumer sentiment would be if consumers actually realized how much worse things are going to get. In fact, buying conditions for vehicles crashed during the month to an all-time record low. Why is that? Well, vehicle prices are really rising. And obviously, the higher the price of vehicles, the less likely it is that people can afford to buy one. And it's not just new vehicles, but used vehicles are getting more expensive. And I expect that trend to continue and maybe even accelerate. We'll see in 2022. But the real shocker was the December retail sales number. Retail sales were expected to be flat in the month of December, and that was going to follow a 0.3% rise in November. Well, the 0.3% increase was revised lower slightly to 0.2, but the December number collapsed minus 1.9% blowing away even the lower range of the consensus, which went from a high of up 0.7 to a low of minus 0.6, minus 1.9, well below the minus 6. And in fact, it gets worse when you X out vehicles. There, we were supposed to go up 0.3. Instead, we went down 2.3. And in fact, they even revised The November number, which was up 0.3, now that's up just 0.1. And if you X out vehicles and gasoline, the drop was 2.5% versus up 0.2% estimate. And the prior month's increase of 0.2, that was revised to a negative 0.1. These are horrible numbers. They're going to take a big chunk out of Q4 GDP because remember, 70% plus of that GDP number 
is consumer spending. And if retail sales are collapsing, obviously so is consumer spending. And so growth is going to be lower than what had been forecast, while inflation is going to be higher. Stagflation is where we're headed. And remember, these retail sales numbers are not adjusted for inflation. We know that prices rose quite a bit in December for goods. And in fact, they rose more than what the government claims, because when the government calculates the CPI and they do their substitution and they do their hedonics and all the things to make inflation look lower. The reality is when consumers buy stuff, they don't get to buy those made up prices that the government conjures into existence to make inflation look better. They actually have to pay the real prices and they're doing that when they're buying stuff retail and that's in the sales figures. And if sales are dropping Even as prices are rising, what does that tell you about the volume of sales? The volume is actually going down even more than these price declines. That's because consumers are paying more for the stuff they are buying. So they pay more and they get less. So the real retail sales are actually down more than these percentage numbers. People are having to reduce their purchases because the stuff that they're buying costs more. And because prices are higher, they have to reduce their spending because they don't have an unlimited amount of money. And that's basic supply and demand. Price goes up, demand goes down. That's what's going on here. But I think what's the most significant is not these numbers, but how the markets are responding to these numbers. Because I've been talking about the rotation out of momentum and growth stocks into value dividend paying stocks for some time now on my podcast. I really noticed it happening beneath the surface in the fourth quarter of last year. But now this rotation is no longer happening beneath the surface. I mean, it is broken through and it's there in plain sight for everybody to see. And it is massive. If you look at the MSCI World Value Index. It is up 2.1% on the year. But the MSCI World Growth Index is down 5.6% on the same year. So you have growth stocks falling and value stocks rising. But you can see the disparity even greater when you take out the U.S. because the MSCI World Index value is up 2.1, but excluding the U.S., it's up 4.7. And on the growth side, including the U.S., I said it's down 5.6. If you take the U.S. out, it's only down 5.1. Now, that's still a big drop, but it's not as big a drop as in the U.S. In fact, if you pull the U.S. out of the MSCI World Value Index and just look at the U.S., It was only up 0.57% so far this year. So a little bit above a half a percent, whereas outside the U.S., the value stocks were up 4.7%. Pretty big difference. Not quite as big a difference, but still a difference when it comes to growth. Pulling the U.S. out of the MSCI, U.S. growth stocks were down 5.8%. But obviously, the biggest divergence is between U.S. growth and international value. There, the difference in performance in just the first two weeks of January is 10.5%. 
10.5% outperformance so far this year. That is an enormous delta between growth stocks in the U.S. and value stocks outside the U.S. So the rotation that I observed last quarter is accelerating into the year. And that rotation is out of high-priced momentum U.S. stocks into fairly valued or undervalued non-U.S. stocks. That's what's going on, and I think that's what's going to continue. Now, of course, U.S. growth stocks have been outperforming foreign value stocks by a wide margin for years, right, as the Fed continued to provide more and more monetary stimulus. In the future, at least the near future, the Fed is going to provide less monetary stimulus. It's not going to provide zero stimulus because policy is not going from easy to tight. It's just going to ease from easy to less easy, but that's not enough to maintain the momentum in these stocks and people are shifting to value stocks because they recognize the effect this shift is going to have on valuations. Now, what they still don't recognize is what it really portends for the economy. Most people still think that we're going to have growth. In fact, growth might even pick up even as rates rise, which is one of the reasons that there is a lot of confidence in these cyclical value stocks to deliver higher earnings and good dividends. They don't realize that there is going to be a stagflationary environment. And they also don't realize that the Fed is never going to catch up to the inflation curve, that even though the Fed is increasing interest rates, inflation is going to rise faster than interest rates. And so real rates are going to continue to fall even as nominal rates are rising. And then, of course, ultimately, the Fed may be forced to do an about face because of the damage its less loose monetary policy is doing to the U.S. stock market and to the U.S. economy. In fact, looking at the specific numbers, the Dow Jones is down 1.2% so far this year. 0.9% of that decline happening this week. The S&P is down 2.2% on the year, although only about a third of a percent was contributed this week. So more of the damage was in the first week. That's true with the NASDAQ as well, which is down 4.8% on the year, 1.3% this week. Now, it would have been worse. The NASDAQ was on the lows this Friday morning, but there was a bit of a reversal. The market rallied. We probably had some short covering. And so that helped defray some of the damage on the year. Russell 2000 also down 3.7% so far this year, 0.8% on the week. But if you just look at the most speculative names in the NASDAQ, they are doing even worse. So the further up you go on the risk curve, the more investors are dumping those stocks. Take a look again at Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation. It was down 5% on the week. It's already down 15% on the year. And so that fund owns all the most highly speculative overpriced stocks in the market. Now, of course, that was a huge winner in 2021. That's why the air is coming out of that bubble in 2022. Another bubble, Bitcoin. Look at the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It was only down 0.7% on the week. Again, we got a bit of a reversal on Friday to mitigate the damage on the week. But the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust 
down 11% already in 2022. But the weakness in Bitcoin has thus far not really translated into strength in gold. Although gold was up 1.1% on the week, it is still down 0.76% on the year, but it's still holding above 1,800. It closed at around 1,818, which I think is a pretty good sign for gold. Silver had a strong week, up 2.8% this week, despite being down on Friday, but it's still down on the year, down 1.4%. And again, I think investors are still looking at rate hikes as being negative for gold, but at some point they'll understand that the rate hikes are not negative for gold. They're positive because they're too little too late to slow inflation. And in fact, real interest rates will be falling despite the small increase in nominal rates. I don't think it's going to take that much longer for investors to figure this out and make this transition into gold. Clearly, they're getting out of crypto. It makes sense that they would go into gold. And since they're buying value stocks, it makes sense that they would buy gold stocks because I think gold stocks represent significant value if you look at their PEs and book values and compare the prices today relative to those metrics to what has been historically average. There's a lot of value in these stocks. In fact, gold stocks are still down 3% on the year, if you look at the GDX, despite being up 3% this week, which means they were down 6% the first week of the year based on rising rates. In fact, the yield on the 10-year so far this year has gone from 1.51% to 1.77, and the yield on the 30-year has gone from one9 to 2.11. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night, and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. So these rising rates is what scared gold traders. But look at the dollar. The dollar is down on the year. These rising interest rates are not causing flows into the dollar. The dollar index, the DXY, was down 0.6% on the week, 0.85% on the year. That is a good sign for gold, as is the rise in the price of oil. There is a correlation between oil and gold. Oil is breaking out. Gold is going to have to follow. As I already said, oil prices are up 11% this year, 6.2% this week alone. Those subscriptions really add up, and sometimes we don't notice the monthly deductions coming from our bank accounts. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, no longer want, or simply forgot you had. On average, people are saving thousands of dollars a year using Truebill. See all your subscriptions in one place, keep the ones you want, cancel the ones you don't, all from your app. 
and your Truebill concierge is there for you when you need them to help cancel those unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to do it yourself. No talking to humans, no difficult conversations. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped them save over 100 million. Like Becca L., who says, quote, hands down, the best financial app I've ever discovered. In my first week, I opened up $187 in unused recurring subscriptions. I'm obsessed. I never want to imagine finance without Truebill again. In fact, what I like about Truebill is it alerts me to extra large purchases. Usually, those are the ones made by my wife. Now, she doesn't like that feature, but I do. Maybe it saves me some money because she knows I'm watching what she's spending. So start canceling your unused subscriptions today at Truebill.com gold. Go right now, Truebill.com gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. Now, I don't often get into individual stocks on this podcast, and it's not because I don't want to. It's because FINRA rules, and FINRA is the self-regulatory organization that the U.S. government forces me to be a member of in order to be a stockbroker. And of course, they try to pretend that it's private, but it's not really private. If the government forces me to be a member of something, then it's basically a government agency. Because if I don't have any choice in the matter, the government says, if you want to be a stockbroker, you are required to be a member of this organization and do everything that they say, and you can't quit, right? So that's not really private. They pretend they are. And in fact, these quasi-government agencies where the government requires you to be a member of a private agency, I think that's actually worse than a government agency. I would rather just deal with the government than with a private company that the government forces me to patronize. That's even worse. In fact, I deal with both FINRA and the SEC, right? The SEC is a government agency. FINRA is private. Personally, I prefer the SEC. I think dealing with the SEC is better. This is the worst of both worlds when the government requires you to be a member. Now, if membership in FINRA were voluntary, I would be in favor of FINRA. And FINRA might be a good organization if you can voluntarily associate yourself with it. And if you didn't like it, then you can leave. Because if the whole point of FINRA is to make sure that retail investors are protected and they get good advice, well, retail investors could have a choice. They could say, hey, I'm only going to work with brokers that are members of FINRA. That way I get the FINRA protection. But if they don't want that protection, adult Americans should be free to say, you know what? I don't need the protection of the government. I'm perfectly willing to work with this broker, even though this broker is not a member of FINRA. But the government took away that choice. You don't have a choice because you're only allowed to work with brokers who are members of FINRA. Therefore, FINRA has a monopoly on brokers. If you want to be a broker, you have no choice but to be a member. And that actually limits the choice that consumers have. Because if consumers could choose to use brokers that were not part of FINRA, then FINRA would have to compete for brokers to join. There would have to be some real value that was conveyed there. And if there was demand in the marketplace for FINRA brokers, then brokers would voluntarily join FINRA. But we can't see that. There is no free market because the government has taken those choices away. And so because FINRA exists, I think brokerage, full service brokerage anyway, is a lot more expensive than it otherwise would have been. And the quality is a lot lower. And it's one of the reasons that so many small investors 
have no brokers. They have to do it themselves. They have to open up a Robinhood app because the rules when you want to give investment advice are so onerous and so expensive that most Wall Street firms can't afford to advise smaller investors. So they have very high minimums because the government has made it so expensive to provide advice to small investors. So small investors are totally priced out of the market. They can't just use a non-FINRA broker because that's illegal. So all they can do is do it themselves and they are making tremendous mistakes and they're gonna be losing a lot of money thanks to the government. But anyway, getting back to the individual stocks. So the reason I don't talk about them is because I'm not allowed to give investment recommendations on specific stocks unless I first know whether or not the stock is suitable for the person I'm recommending it to. And obviously, when I do a podcast, I have no idea who's listening to this podcast, nor do I know the risk tolerance or other suitability factors of each and every listener. And so therefore, I cannot give investment advice. And a lot of times, if I just mention a stock, it could be deemed that I'm advising people to buy the stock. So I want to just mention a few stocks just as examples. I'm not recommending any of these stocks, even though the stocks I'm about to discuss are stocks that I own personally, and they are stocks that are in our managed portfolios and in my mutual funds. I'm not recommending that anybody that's listening to this podcast go out and buy any of these stocks. I'm just using this as an example. I do recommend that people invest in my mutual funds and my managed accounts, talk to one of the representatives at Europe Pacific Asset Management, Europe Pacific Capital, to find out if my funds and my strategies are appropriate and suitable for you, given your objectives and risk tolerance. But here are some of these stocks and what they've done. One of them is British American Tobacco. I've owned that stock for a while, value stock, it's been cheap. It was up 9% last week. It's up 13.5% on the year. That is a big move for a stock like British American Tobacco, especially given its low PE, its high dividend yield. The stock yields about 7% now after the increase. So a lot of people that were buying it, maybe they were just buying it for an 8% dividend yield and they're already up 13.5% on the year in addition to the 8% yield that they were expecting on the stock. Why is it up? There's no news. It's up because of the rotation. People are getting out of growth into value. Take a look at Bayer. It's a German chemical company, agriculture consumer company. We've owned that for several years. It was up 8.3% on the week. 12.3% on the year. That is a big move on really no news. Again, it is the rotation. And what is behind this rotation? Because a lot of times, if you want to get out of the stock market because central banks are tightening policy, you're going to go to cash. But people don't want to go to cash. Why should they? The yield on cash is still zero. And the real yield on cash is negative. Because these tiny rate hikes that are being proposed are well below the rate of inflation that we have. Even if you expect the inflation rate to come down, it's not going to come down nearly enough to make interest rates positive. So you've got negative interest rates no matter what. So why go to cash? If you're worried about losing money in momentum stocks and then you go to cash, well, you're definitely going to lose money in cash. Central banks are guaranteeing 
that you will lose money in cash. Now, you can't go into bonds for the same reason. Bonds are not safe. Look how low bond yields are and look how much lower than inflation bond yields are. So you have the same negative yield problem in bonds that you have with cash, but you have another problem with bonds that you don't have with cash, and that's the price falling. Bond prices are falling as yields are rising. So you can't get out of momentum stocks into bonds because you're gonna lose money in bonds too. So the only rotation that you could make if you don't wanna lose is out of momentum into value, into dividend paying stocks. So that's what's going on. People aren't going to cash because cash is still trash. It's just that in an environment of less loose monetary policy, the air is gonna come out of these massive bubbles and it's going someplace and it's going into these value stocks. And as I said earlier, the real rotation is out of overpriced US momentum into foreign, non-U.S. value stocks. Not U.S. value, but foreign value. Yes, the shift is taking place in the U.S. too, but it's even bigger out of the U.S. into international because if you want value stocks, there's a lot more value outside the United States than inside the United States. And if the dollar is going to be falling, which it's going to, then you get the currency tailwind by investing abroad And if you're a foreigner and you're investing in the U.S., now you have a currency headwind. But as I said earlier, if we're going to get a weak dollar, if we're going to get strong commodities and strong oil, ultimately we're going to get strong gold. But for now, investors are still not looking at gold and gold stocks and just looking at value stocks. In fact, take a look at what's happening to black gold, oil. I mentioned oil up 11% on the year. Look at the oil stocks, British Petroleum up 8% on the week, 20% already on the year. And again, these stocks are still value stocks. British Petroleum is under 10 times earnings. The yield is 4%, but that's after this big price increase. The yield was higher than that before the price went up. People who were buying it for a yield, maybe 5% yield, they've already got a 20% appreciation in the first two weeks of the year. Plus, I think the yield's going up because British Petroleum is going to be able to raise their dividend because they're going to be getting a lot more money for their oil. But it's not just British Petroleum. I think that's my biggest gainer on the year for our oil stocks. Look at Total, the French company, also up 8% on the week, 15.5% on the year. Royal Dutch up 6% on the week, 15.5% on the year. These are big moves. And again, all of these stocks are still trading below 10 times earnings. But there are a lot of other sectors besides energy that are doing well. Look at the telecoms. We own a lot of global telecom stocks. These stocks have been cheap for years. They're still really cheap, but they're getting less cheap. Look at Vodafone was up 4% on the week, 10% so far on the year. Singapore Telecom up 5.5% on the week, 6% on the year. These are pretty nice moves against an overall down market. So it really shows you the magnitude of this rotation. Look at BASF, which is a German chemical company that we own. It was up 3.5% this week, but 10.5% so far this year. We own quite a few consumer companies. Danone up 3.5% this week, 6.5% on the year. Utilities also doing well. Look at Engie, which is a utility that we own in France 
up 5.3% this week, 7% on the year. Sodexo, which is a French services company, that was up 3.5% on the week, but 7.4% on the year. Another telecom, Telefonica in Spain, that was up 4.3% on the week, 8% on the year. These are big numbers for these types of stocks value dividend paying stocks we're only two weeks into this year and as this outperformance continues to widen what's going to happen it's going to attract even more flows because investors who are missing out on this switch right they're still stuck in the portfolios that worked in 2021 they haven't made the rotation into the stuff that's working in 2022 but as investors start to look in that rear view mirror and see this widening out performance in particular between international value and domestic growth, more money is going to want to shift out of domestic growth into international value. And that's going to drive the disparity between the returns to an even greater degree, right? People are going to be sending money to the stuff that's going up. They're going to be pulling money out of the stuff that's going down. And in fact, these momentum stocks have a long way to fall because they're not going to become value stocks until the prices collapse. Because if that is the new trend in investing, if we're going to shun momentum and look for value, these momentum stocks have to drop a long way before any value investors would step up to the plate. You know, a lot of people like to pretend that when some of these overpriced stocks go down 20 or 30 percent, they're a value, they're a bargain, they're on sale. They're not. They're still overpriced. They're still expensive. So in a world where value is preferred to growth, Just because some of these growth stocks are less expensive than they used to be, that doesn't make them values. In fact, once the momentum stocks no longer have momentum, what are they? The momentum is busted, but they're still too expensive to be value. So they have a long way to go. And as they are dropping, the people who own them now want to get rid of them. And now they want to buy what's going up. And that's why I've been telling my clients and the listeners to this podcast, don't wait for the stampede. Move ahead of the curve. I've been positioning myself for years in international value stocks because I've known for years that's where everybody is going to end up. Now, it's not too late to make this rotation. So if you're still holding on to those domestic growth stocks, it's not too late to get rid of them because they still have a long way to fall. It's not too late to get into my strategy. Even though we've had a good two weeks, I think this is nothing compared to what's going to play out over the next several years, especially when we get the gold stocks performing. In fact, if you look at the performance of my funds, like value and dividend payers, we've underperformed the MSCI value index this year because of the inclusion of gold stocks in my strategies, because those stocks are down 3% on the year and the MCI World Index doesn't really have any gold stocks. I'm pretty unique really in having gold stocks or whatever their weighting is, is tiny compared to what my weighting is. But if you X out the gold stocks and just look at my non-gold stocks, we're actually beating that index. But I think that my allocation to gold is ultimately going to help me 
outperform those indexes substantially because I think the gold stocks represent the ultimate value stocks, especially in a stagflationary environment, in an environment where real interest rates continue to fall and where central banks continue to throw gasoline on an inflationary fire. When investors figure this out, then you're really going to see a move into these gold stocks. So before that happens, buy them yourself. Take advantage of these cheap prices and get into these stocks, whether you do it yourself or whether you buy my gold fund or whether you get your exposure through my other funds that include allocations to gold. We have separately managed accounts that are exclusively in gold now. Adrian Day is managing those for us. But you should speak to one of the advisors at your Pacific Asset Management, your Pacific Capital, figure out which of these strategies is best for you. Or a lot of my mutual funds, you could just buy them if you have accounts at Schwab or Fidelity or any of these discount brokers. All of my mutual funds are there available. You could do it yourself and you could buy these funds. But my advice would just be to get into them sooner rather than later. Read the prospectus, make sure you understand the risks involved, but open your eyes to see what's happening because what we've seen so far in the first two weeks of this year, this doesn't happen. And it's not insignificant. When you see a better than 10% gap between the returns on international value and domestic growth, something big is happening. This is a massive shift that can't be ignored. The good news is it's still early. So if you haven't positioned yourself properly, you still have time to do it. I want to finish up today's podcast, though, by talking about the Brainerd Senate confirmation hearings. I already spent some time on the last podcast going over what Powell had to say during his job interview. So today I want to talk a little bit about Brainerd. One thing in particular that she said is she basically blamed inflation on COVID. Now, first of all, you have to realize that Brainerd is probably the biggest dove on the FOMC. Of course, they're all doves. She's just the biggest of them. And she is one of the people that was most certain that inflation was transitory. There's lots of clips of her reassuring everybody not to worry about inflation. It's going to go away. It's transitory. No big deal. In fact, last year, she was still talking about the problem of inflation being too low that there wasn't enough inflation and that it was her goal as an FOMC member to make sure that we had more inflation. Well, now we have a lot more inflation. And you would think that somebody that was this bad at their job would not be promoted because basically she's not just getting renominated; She's being promoted to vice chair of the Fed from just a regular member to vice chair. Now, normally, before you get promoted at your job, you do a really good job and then you earn a promotion. You can argue that of all the FOMC members, she did the worst job because she was the one that got inflation the most wrong because she was the most certain that it was transitory. And in fact, she wanted more inflation. She didn't think we had enough. So if anything, she should be fired from the FOMC. She should be the one that loses her job not the one that gets promoted. But of course, that's how government works, right? You just promote the worst possible worker that you have. In the private sector, that would never happen, right? Because a private company would care about results 
and performance and would reward the people that perform well. But in government, you reward the least competent people on your team. And that's what's happening here. Why is Brainerd being promoted? Because she's a woman. That's why she's being promoted, right? There was a lot of pressure. Now, part of it is because she's a big dove and everybody wants a dove. But if Brainerd were a man, I don't think she'd get the job. They wanted a woman and they got a woman. So basically, it's affirmative action. And that's why she got promoted. Now, Biden would have liked to have promoted her all the way up to Fed chair. But as I explained, that was too risky a move politically because if everything blew up, it would have been his fault. He wants to keep Trump's guy in place. So now if something goes wrong, it's not his fault because he was stuck with Powell because Trump put him there and he wanted to preserve the status quo. But the reality is Brainerd should not be promoted. She should be fired. And her answers to these questions just confirm that fact. So again, she's blaming inflation on COVID. COVID didn't cause all the money printing. If COVID was left on its own, and if COVID had really slowed down the economy and people would have been forced to stay home rather than go to work, supply would have gone down, but demand would have gone down too. People who aren't working and aren't earning a paycheck can't buy stuff. So there would have been no problem. COVID would have slowed the economy, but it wouldn't have caused inflation because both demand and supply would have gone down. The reason demand didn't go down, even as supply did, was because the Fed kept printing money and the government kept spending money. And so it was demand that was the problem because supply is going to go down, right? If you stop working and stop producing, supply going down is a natural consequence. What is an unnatural consequence is all this excess demand caused by money printing. So COVID is not why we have inflation. Now, what you can say is the government's response to COVID, the Federal Reserve's response to COVID is why we have inflation. It's not the COVID itself. It's what the government did as a result of COVID, in particular, the Federal Reserve. So it is Brainerd's fault. We have inflation because of Lyle Brainerd, not because of COVID. In fact, she told us that we needed more inflation. She specifically said the Fed had a policy goal of more inflation. They were running a loose monetary policy specifically to deliver more inflation. Well, she delivered more inflation in spades. And that's why she should be fired because she is culpable. She is responsible for the very problem she is now being promoted to help solve. And she acknowledged too, she said that inflation is a problem for working families, right? That the cost of living is going up and she pledged to bring inflation back down to 2% a year. Now think about that. Prices have already gone up by, let's say, 7% officially in 2021, much more unofficially, maybe 15%. If that is a problem, if families are struggling because prices have gone up by 7%, if all she's promising to do is to make sure that the extra increases are just 2% a year, well, if prices go up 2% in 2022, that means they went up 9% in 2021 and 2022. So if prices being up 7% is a problem, wouldn't 9% be a bigger problem? Now, maybe you could say, well, maybe real wages will grow. Maybe they won't. 
Maybe the increase in wages won't be 2% in 2022. But also, there are people struggling with inflation that don't have any wages at all. What if you're living on a fixed income? You're retired and you're struggling because prices went up 7%. Your struggle is going to be harder if they go up another 2% this year and then another 2% and another 2%. Why is her goal to continue price increases only at a slower percentage? Why isn't she pledging to reverse that? Why isn't she saying prices were up 7% last year? Our goal is for them to come down 3% this year. You know, if the Fed's goal is 2% inflation per year, and we just had 7% in one year, that's three and a half years worth of 2% inflation in one year. Why isn't Brainerd promising to have 0% inflation for the next three years so that it can average to 2% a year. Because after all, the Fed said we're committed to inflation averaging 2%. Well, if we just had one year of 7%, we need a lot of years of way below 2% to get the average back down to 2%. If all she's trying to do is get future increases down to 2%, the average will never revert to 2%. And of course, they're not even going to get it down to 2% because it's going to stay much higher than 2%. But again, what is so magical about 2%? I mean, why doesn't she bring inflation down to 1%? Again, if we have several years of 1%, the average will still be more than 2% given the fact that we just had 7 And if 2% inflation is good, why isn't 3% better? 3% is not better because it's higher. But that also means 2% is not better than 1%. And 1% is not better than zero. And again, falling prices are better than rising prices. Why is it that only economists can't understand that? Consumers want lower prices. Again, right? Walmart's tagline, they promise everyday low prices. You think they would be successful if their tagline was everyday high prices? Only central bankers and economists think people want to pay high prices. They don't. They want low prices. If you run a business and you want to sell more stuff, what do you do? You put it on sale. You don't raise prices. You don't tell your customers, hey, hurry up. I just raised prices 10%. Come in and buy. No, you say, hey, 10% off. That's what you do to get people to buy. When prices go down, people can buy more stuff. Everybody wins with lower prices. Nobody points this out. Nobody in the Senate points out the fact that this whole idea that we need 2% inflation is a farce. And in fact, when inflation was 1.8%, 1.9%, and they got the monetary pedal to the metal under the guise that 1.8% was not enough. We needed two. 1.8% is not enough inflation. That extra two percentage points is going to make a difference. And now they've overshot all the way up to 7% just because they weren't satisfied with 1.9. The Fed put us into this situation and promoting one of the key people responsible for our plight is not the way to fix the problem. It's the way to make the problem worse. A final point, though, that I thought that she made that was very interesting was one of the senators pointed out the fact that quantitative easing is one of the reasons for the widening of the wealth gap between the rich and the poor because quantitative easing results in rising asset prices. And of course, wealthier people tend to own assets. And so when quantitative easing pushes up asset prices, it disproportionately benefits the wealthy owners of assets. And you don't see any real benefit to the poor people or middle class. In fact, if quantitative easing is making 
prices rise at the supermarket, in addition to the stock market, it disproportionately impacts lower income people who spend a higher portion of their earnings on food. If you're very rich and the price of food doubles, you may not even notice it because it's such a small percentage of your income or your net worth that is spent on food. But if you're poor and you spend 10% of your income on food and the price of food doubles and now you're spending 20%, that's a big deal. Now you have to start cutting back on other things that you buy in order to afford to buy food. If you're rich and the price of food goes up, you don't have to cut back on anything. I mean, maybe you have a little bit less money to invest or a little bit less money to give to charity, but you don't have less money to spend on the things that you enjoy doing. That's not the case for lower income people. So the senator said, hey, you know, why are you doing QE? Why did you do it for so long? Given the fact that it is widening the divide between the haves and the have nots. And her answer was that QE is necessary. That yes, even though it has a negative consequence of widening the wealth gap, that is an acceptable trade-off for the benefits that we get from QE because it protects jobs. This is what Lyle Brainer believes, that we protect jobs by printing money. And even if it results in a widening wealth gap, it's okay because we protect jobs. And if we don't protect jobs, then, you know, obviously that's going to be terrible. If people lose their jobs, that's really, really bad. So we have to save their jobs, even if in the process we make the super rich even more rich. But she's wrong. She's not really saving jobs. Now, she's saving some jobs, but she's saving some jobs at the expense of other jobs that would exist but for quantitative easing. The reality is she's saving the jobs that are associated with the bubble. She is keeping labor employed in non-productive, non-economic uses. One of the best parts of the free market is that it allocates resources to their highest and best use. One of those resources is labor, right? We all work and our labor has value and we want productivity to be associated with that work. Now, as a result of the Fed's easy money, you get asset bubbles. You get certain parts of the economy that get capital and grow that under a normal situation with market interest rates would never attract capital and would never grow. Mises called these malinvestments. You create companies that really aren't economically viable, but they appear viable given the artificial environment created by the Fed. So these companies that really aren't economically viable hire people. Now, when the bubble pops, allowing these companies to go bankrupt would mean that these people that never should have been hired in the first place are going to get fired. And so you are going to see an increase in unemployment as these malinvestments are liquidated. What QE does is try to cement those malinvestments in place, try to keep those businesses from laying off those workers. But in reality, what they're doing is preventing those workers from finding more productive jobs. The free market wants that labor reallocated to a better use. People that are working in these bubble industries, when they get fired from those jobs, it's not like they're never going to work again. They're going to have to work someplace else. The capital that was employing them is going to be redirected someplace else, and the owners of that capital are going to need 
workers. I mean, one example right now in the white collar space is all the people that are working in crypto. Some of the smartest and hardest working young people are now working for companies that are blockchain and cryptocurrency. And I think that when this crypto bubble pops, lots of these people are going to lose their jobs. Now, they're not going to be unemployed forever. These are very smart people. They are going to work in other areas of the economy where we would actually benefit from their intelligence and from their hard work. Nobody is benefiting now from what they're doing. They're doing nothing. They're operating in a bubble. The country is worse off because so many smart young people are wasting their time in a bubble, but they're doing it because they think they're going to get rich. Why is capital being misallocated to this sector? Because of the bubble, because they're chasing these profits. But when the bubble pops, these jobs are going to go away. Same thing during 2008. We had a lot of jobs in finance that should have gone away. A lot of these companies would have gone bankrupt, but for quantitative easing. But the Federal Reserve isn't saving jobs because we would have better jobs if they didn't save the jobs that should have been lost. QE is preventing the free market from efficiently allocating labor. Now, it's also preventing it from efficiently allocating capital. But Lyle Blainard specifically wants to talk about how QE saves jobs. And from a political standpoint, yes, because when people lose jobs, those people vote and you can see those job losses immediately. The job gains that happen later are a little bit harder to comprehend and they're not as beneficial to the politicians because people are a lot madder immediately after they lose their job and they may take out their anger on the incumbent politicians. And as far as an individual is concerned, they don't care if they're employed productively or unproductively. All they care about is whether they're getting paid for their work. And if they lose a job and then they have to find another job, they're pissed. But from an economic perspective, it makes a big difference whether or not somebody is employed productively or unproductively. Because ultimately, society doesn't benefit from labor. We're not better off because we all work. In fact, most of us would prefer not to work. We benefit from leisure, not having to work. And what creates more leisure is more productivity. So the more productive we are when we work, the less we have to work. And so productivity is important. And we want the economic output associated with labor. We don't want the labor itself. The labor is a cost. The benefit is what labor produces. And if labor is not productive, we don't get the benefit. The more labor produces, the more benefit we have from the expenditure of that labor. So society, the country, we care how labor resources are allocated. We want people producing the things that we need and that make our lives better. In fact, if you look at our trade deficits in goods, they are exploding. We have never seen such enormous trade deficits in goods. Why? Because Americans are not producing those goods. Americans are working, right? We have very low unemployment, but they're not employed producing the goods that Americans want. We have to buy those goods abroad. We're running these trade deficits. Why? Because so many American workers, even though they're working, they're working unproductively. And why is that? It's because of the Fed, 
because of quantitative easing. Now, also because of a lot of other programs and legislation and taxes and subsidies from Congress. But the Fed is responsible for a significant portion of this misallocation of labor resources because so many people are employed unproductively. We now have this huge gap and we have to fill the gap by running these huge trade deficits. So if we weren't doing quantitative easing, yes, we would lose a lot of these non-productive jobs, but we need to lose those jobs to make room for the productive jobs that we clearly do need, but don't have. And the capital that is now supporting the unproductive jobs needs to be reallocated to support the productive jobs, but that won't happen as long as the Federal Reserve is in the way. So when Lyle Brainerd thinks that the Fed is doing everybody a favor by protecting jobs with quantitative easing, she is not doing us a favor she is inflicting significant harm on the overall economy because having labor misallocated to unproductive uses results in a lower living standard for everybody. And the people who are most affected, who have their living standards lower the most, are the middle class and the working poor. And in particular, if she's so concerned about minorities, minorities are disproportionately negatively impacted by the lower standard of living that quantitative easing has delivered. 